Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich, and today this podcast is sponsored by Alanco Animal Health. For Defense Against Scours, there's only one option that delivers comprehensive protection and market-leading flexibility, Scour Boss. The Scour Boss vaccine provides broad-spectrum protection against up to nine pathogens and can be administered up to four months pre-capping. When it comes to scour support, trust the boss to have your back. Talk to your herd health veterinarian today about incorporating Scour Boss into your program or learn more at scourboss.com. I want to thank Alanco for sponsoring this podcast. And the title of our podcast is Fitness to Transport. And we have two guests today, Dr. Michelle Calvo-Lorenzo and Dr. Lily Edwards-Calloway. Lily, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, please. Yes. Uh, thank you for having me, Fred. I appreciate the opportunity. So I am an associate professor at Colorado State University. I grew up outside of agriculture, so I made my way eventually to CSU and actually got my PhD there. Um, and my kind of area of focus, the, the stuff I love to do the most, is really look at end-of-life decision-making across the board for different livestock species. So this could be, you know, on-farm at dairies, looking at what we're going to talk about today and things like timely euthanasia, or looking at the marketing process of maybe fed cattle uh, going to slaughter and what that looks like for them. Very important topic. Michelle, please introduce yourself as well. Yes, thank you, Fred. And again, thank you um, for having both of us on to discuss this really important topic today. Um, so again, I'm Michelle Calvo-Lorenzo, and I'm the Chief Animal Welfare Officer at Alenco Animal Health. I've been with Alenco now for seven years, and prior to, I was uh, faculty at Oklahoma State University um, with all of my education, uh, master's and PhD out at UC Davis, um, like Lily. I also didn't grow up in agriculture, but um, have really found this space of animal welfare and livestock to be an ever-evolving space. And there's so many topics, um, even just within cattle, that we constantly are talking about and working to implement in the field. So feel really, really privileged to be here with you all and I'm excited to discuss this topic. So am I, and I always think that as veterinarians working on these farms, we need to uh, identify areas where we can improve animal welfare, improve the life of the animals that we're tasked with caring for and helping our producers make sure that that goal gets accomplished. So let's start off and just define what is fitness to transport? Well, thank you for that question. It is the million-dollar question, and I think it is sometimes actually where we get hung up a little bit because some people have different perceptions of, of what that is, and we'll talk about that today. But basically, um, fitness to transport is really talking about an animal's ability to withstand transportation without compromising their welfare. So if we think about what we're asking an animal to do and it gets on a truck, I think sometimes we take for granted what that journey could look like for the animal. But the animal must be in a, a good enough condition to really endure the normal stresses of transport. And as much as we try to reduce stress, I think the industry does a great job of, you know, low stress handling, making sure animals are hydrated when they get on a truck. There are some things if an animal is in poorer condition that it just won't be able to withstand. And so it's really looking at, is an animal fit to get on that truck and make it to its end destination without its welfare being compromised? Um, and the thing I'll say, which I, I think we'll address a little bit more in detail, 
but sometimes we talk a little bit more about the conditions that make an animal not fit to transport. Mm -hmm. And I think that's generally how we approach making those decisions. So Fred, I'd also like to add to Lily's really important points there um, in that this decision isn't just one that's supposed to be made on the dairy, right? The, the entire supply chain has many stops um, in which a cow or calf may have. So this decision has to be made throughout the entire supply chain, right? So that, that assessment of whether an animal is fit needs to be happening by many different decision makers. Um, so it's, it's really important and vital that, again, we have a very good and straightforward understanding of what is fit versus what is not fit. Um, and we have to look at the lens, as Lily mentioned earlier, how can that animal endure that next leg of journey? And sometimes, for the most part, that's unknown to that person making that decision. Yeah. And, and why is this discussion important? for the, the cattle, the dairy producer, customers, consumers? Yeah, Fred, so that's a great question. Um, when we think about this topic, many people get overwhelmed because it truly is a responsibility that is supply chain-wide, right? As, as we were saying earlier, this can't just fall on the dairy, but the dairy is making that, or the calf ranch, right? They're making that first initial decision. So that's very critical. So we have to have this discussion proactively and effectively with all the different stakeholders across the supply chain. And the reason why we have to have this discussion, again, in a proactive and effective manner, and I have to stress here that veterinarians can play an awesome and important role in this process, is because A, Animals that are compromised, animals that are stressed, enduring pain, right? They are, they are a safety hazard, not just to um, the animals themselves, but to the people having to handle them or receive them, right? Another important reason why we have to have this discussion up and down the supply chain is because the reality is, is that animal activism efforts are becoming much more aggressive, much more strategic, and much more advanced, and we cannot allow for those groups to have any opportunity to capture any footage that pertains to people safety or animal welfare, right? In order for every stakeholder to maintain their oper uh, license to operate. Um, and then the last point, which I think is also just as important, is that any animal caretaker, whether you're talking about someone that's handling animals on an operation or someone that's transporting animals, this just just by not making these decisions appropriately, we're just as an industry not maintaining animal welfare commitments like all of our guidelines and all of our veterinary uh, standards. Right. All of the work that everyone's done and all the tools that are being created to, to implement these things, we're just not maintaining those standards and commitments. So as an industry, we have to continue to do what's right and make sure and check ourselves that we continue to do that because Headlines can come out, right, whether it's activist related or not. Headlines can hit the news. And we know that social media is very powerful. Right. And the problem is, is that not only just dairies or, or brands may be associated with those negative outcomes, but veterinarians can also be um, compromised or impacted by those negative headlines. Right. Um, so it's very important for everyone in the supply chain that's involved um, to play an important role. And again, like I said earlier, have these discussions proactively and effectively. Just to add to what Michelle said, um, and I think she said this perfectly, but we really owe it to the animal. And so to kind of 
you know, steal a quote from Temple that I won't directly quote. Um, we owe the animal respect during its life and we owe it a painless death. And so that might be a little bit more focused on maybe what happens at the plant or during, your, during euthanasia. But I think that whole fitness to transport component is part of that endpoint for that animal. And so I, I think we owe it to the animal um, to make sure that we do what's right through the end. Yeah, I agree completely. And, and those are uh, things that we need to consider uh, while we're walking through uh, these decisions with uh, farms. What are some of the considerations in the decision-making process for fitness to transport? And, and what about I, how do uh, or how important is it for, you know, farmers and veterinarians to identify who's making those decisions? Those are great questions. And I think all of what you identified are very important parts of the process, that decision-making process. So there needs to be a clear process that everybody understands and that's accessible to everybody. Um, so, you know, depending on the operation, this will obviously differ, but I think generally uh, people need to understand what fitness to transport looks like or what it doesn't look like um, within their operation. And there are, you know, industry guidelines for that. Um, the farm program, uh, has a requirement for a fitness to transport protocol. And so within that, um, there would be provisions for, for animals being sent, um, off the farm or off, off the farm in that application. You can use this across the supply chain, as has been mentioned. Uh, and within that farm program, actually, it does consider fitness to transport as part of a comprehensive herd health plan. So I think that's, really telling and in, in showing the role that a veterinarian would have in making sure that that protocol um, and those recommendations really make sense um, from an animal health and welfare standpoint. I think another important thing uh, is to identify who is making those decisions. So, I, you know, depending on the operation, once again, this might differ, but, you know, the manager may be the one making the ultimate decision um, for an animal to be transported, but the caretaker is the one probably seeing the animal's on a lot more regular daily basis. And so there needs to be some method of open communication, um, even if that caretaker is not the one making that, that final decision. Uh, employees need to be trained um, to identify fitness to transport. So making sure, once again, that everybody's on the same page of what that process looks like for that operation. And then one thing that I don't think is probably called out enough um, or that we we say enough is I think that there needs to be a process for if an employee is unsure about the decision or, you know, it doesn't quite feel right, or maybe it wants clarification on how that decision was made, um, or if it's still the right decision, you know, depending on time frame. I think there needs to be a clear understanding that someone can ask questions. So just because we have a protocol, it doesn't mean it can't be questioned. And so I think just having that open communication um, between farm owners, managers, veterinarians, and employees is really critical. And I'd stress too, because I think that's a great point, Lily, is that if the veterinarian can form relationships, right, that are that are much more personalized, professional, of course, but where those employees know that that veterinarian is part of that farm's culture and that's their go-to guy and they know they've got that question for the vet the next time they see them. I think that's really powerful because it helps that veterinarian become much more inclusive with those employees and that in itself will also yield better results from any training or efforts that veterinarian puts into working with those employees. Um, and some other numbers I've got for you, Fred, um, on another point Lily made. So, 
uh, earlier this year in March, um, I was able to give a talk on fitness to transport and I was able to pull the audience, which um, included about 400 dairy producers. Um, this was at the High Plains Dairy Conference, like I said, earlier in March. Um, and I asked the, the group, you know, who is responsible for fitness to transport decisions on your operations? And overwhelmingly, 63% of the audience indicated it was the manager, whereas 20% of the audience indicated it was the dairy owner, 6% were caretakers, and then we kind of had that remaining 10 to 12% as other, and maybe it included the veterinarian as it was explained to me by the audience. So I think that's going to vary, obviously, depending on the clients that veterinarians call on. But it's really important to know who's making those decisions, right, um, and tailor those interactions and trainings to that appropriate audience. Yeah, thanks for sharing that data. Very, very interesting and very uh, relevant. What impact does this have on the animal, um, on the farm, and then, you know, the entire dairy industry? We, we briefly mentioned the you know, the potential for, you know, an activist video, which we know can be damaging. So I think we need to always keep that in mind that, you know, what we do on the on our particular farm operation can affect our entire industry. What are some of those impacts? Yeah, there's a lot of very high risk impacts here that we have to consider as an industry. <clears throat> the first one being, I, I would think, as Lily pointed out earlier, the animals, right? We owe it to them. It's, it's, it's why we all do what we do. We need those animals to stay comfortable and healthy and have a good quality of life. We owe that to them. So when it comes to fitness to transport decisions, right? We can't just maintain a high standard of animal welfare regarding that animal's quality of life for her entire time on the dairy and then just dismiss it on the day that she's loaded out, right? We have to take, get away from that out of sight, out of mind approach and, and just consider her welfare beyond that point when she leaves that dairy or she leaves that, that sale barn or that auction ring. We have to continue to consider that animal's welfare and think about it on her journey um, and not just dismiss it on that last day that she's on that operation. And so, as we also mentioned earlier, many don't know what that journey is ahead for the animal, right? So we have to consider that. And also, as veterinarians, you all know better than I do, cow condition or calf condition usually doesn't improve during transport, right? So we have to keep all of those things in mind because it's just too high risk um, from the animal's perspective, their welfare, and again, how the industry remains and demonstrates their commitment to these these issues. Um, but as you were mentioning earlier, Fred, there are very high risks with, again, activism uh, being as prevalent as it is and consumer interest in animal welfare as prevalent as it is, right? So we have to consider that when we put animals on these trailers, we're sending them out onto public roads, right? So essentially, if we are loading compromised animals all the time or animals in very poor conditions that likely may not endure the journey, then we're essentially airing out our dirty laundry out on these highways and public roads for consumers to see. Um, and again, for moms like myself and Lily to explain to our children when we're, you know, pulling up at those gas stations where you've got these semis also loading their gas, right? And you have animals that are very compromised in those situations, but you also run the risk of activists making gains, right? And capturing that 
on their footage um, and all of the things that they need to get their message out. So the dairy dairy's um, reputation um, is is at very very high risk from this standpoint as well. Um, and then last but not least, the people involved, right? The the producers, the truck drivers, those that operate at sale barns or those that operate at packing plants, right? We have to remember that folks are going to be at the receiving end um, of these animals, and so we have to take them into consideration what they're going to have to deal with and handling again highly stressed highly anxious highly fearful they're going to receive animals maybe in pain animals that are extremely fatigued and that can be safety um, issues that go down the chain for other people receiving those animals and then the last point i'd like to make for all of those folks involved in, in taking care of cattle and transporting them is just again thinking about that workplace culture if there's an operation that, again, claims that it strives for obtaining animal welfare standards, but then we see animals coming in and arriving in poor conditions, and then we continue to send them off, it just doesn't send the right message to those employees. So how does that affect that employee's attitude? And then down the chain, how does that employee's attitude then affect how it handles animals, right? How it respects animals and cares for those animals. And what does it also say about the perception of management of that operation, of the veterinarian that may be playing a role at that operation, right? So making those kinds of decisions may have larger um, implications beyond what one might think. And that also beyond our consumer and beyond the animal, it also affects the employees that are that are hired and required to be maintaining optimal welfare standards as they interact with animals every day. For the first decision is made at the dairy, but there should be multiple decisions about fitness to transport made as that animal moves through the supply chain. And I think, you know, we've each articulated how it is a supply chain issue. And so I think those decisions are kind of like critical control checkpoints um, at each of those points. And if if we aren't making those right decisions, we're just kind of passing the problem down the chain until it op until it ultimately gets to the end user. Yeah, and that can have some terrible impacts on the animal and the industry. Certainly, let's let's talk about some of the data. Uh, we all love data, so let's talk about some of the data that you've collected on the conditions seen in call cows specifically at livestock markets and, and slaughter plants. If we look at the slaughter plant, um, we do have some studies that have been done kind of characterizing uh, what the conditions of the animals look like. And so I'll just go through a couple of those. Um, the National Beef Quality Audit, which I think everyone's probably familiar with to some degree, um, is performed about every four years. So the current one is in progress. It was a bit delayed um, due to access to packing plants during the pandemic. But the last data came out um, from 2016. And so as part of that, they do look at, you know, cull cows and bulls um, in addition to, you know, finished animals. But if we look at the cold population, that last um, audit said that 43% of dairy cows had some sort of defect. So the thing to remember is that defects could be a lot of different things, right? It could be minimal, it could be severe, and it wasn't really quantified. But if we just think about that's a fairly large proportion um, had some sort of defect, foot abnormality, swollen joints, something like that. 9% were extremely thin and 23% were mobility impaired. So I think if we really think about an animal having to navigate um, a truck, potentially an auction market, um, a slaughter plant, having their mobility impaired is a big um, challenge for that animal. 
uh, another study, it was done on a global scale um, by Vogel in 2018, and that looked at conditions of cold calves arriving at plants as well. And if we looked at the U.S. part only, that study reported that 9% of cows had one or more of the criteria that were measured. And in that study in particular, um, we were looking at like the worst of the worst conditions. So, you know, as mobility impaired for an example, we only considered severe lameness um, within that. So 9%, um, you know, I think the message is the vast majority of cows are in fine condition and they're fit to be transported. But for that 9% of cows that aren't, um, it's a very significant impact to their welfare. Uh, there aren't very many studies in the United States looking at condition of animals at auction markets. Um, there was one from 2011. I think I think we it's time to probably do this again. Um, but that study reported just observing animals in the auction ring. 13% of cull cows were emaciated. 12 had extremely large udders. 45% were lame. So once again, all conditions that compromise animal welfare. Uh, the one point I want to make on that study as well is that it reported that of the, the lots of dairy animals that came through, only 1.5% um, were considered no sale. So so 45% were lame, but only 1.5% of those lots were not purchased. And so people are still buying animals um, that are not fit. Uh, and then the last, the last kind of statistic I'll, I'll provide, um, there are some wonderful studies out of Canada um, by Sojkov. They're in the da uh, Journal of Dairy Science um, from 2020, and they actually provided quite a bit of data at the livestock market point. I think they observed over 6,000 head of animals um, at the auction, and they found that uh, they looked at a whole bunch of different things, but just, you know, as an example, 68 a uh, percent of the cows had severe lameness. And if you looked at all the different things that they measured, 30% of the cows sold at the livestock market had one or more conditions that indicated a poor fitness to transport condition. So I guess after the end of my regurgitation of the numbers, I think it highlights that there is an opportunity in some of those decisions um, and some of those animals making it through the supply chain. Certainly a lot of opportunity there. Um, let's talk a little bit about timeliness. Um, what are some of the challenges uh, to make fitness to transport decisions timely? And then even a timely determination of euthanasia, if it's indicated. I think timeliness, we have a lot, lot of opportunity there to help. And then regarding when the decision is made to transport, when should that be made? When we call the cow or immediately right before she steps onto the trailer? Yeah, timeliness is a really important point, Fred. Um, and, and this spans beyond just fitness to transport, right? As you mentioned, euthanasia is another important area that's kind of closely tied with this subject, but timeliness is super important, um, as are many other health-related or welfare-related issues, right? So um, I'll tell you some of the challenges that I was able to um, gather from that meeting I mentioned earlier where we polled several hundred uh, dairy producers in March of this year. Uh, we found that they indicated the challenges they encounter or that prohibit them or make it harder for them to make timely decisions. Uh, first and foremost included costs, right, or losing money in uh, in euthanizing that animal, shipping her earlier versus shipping her um, 
after that last drop of milk, right, um, that she could provide, right? So cost and money was a very significant challenge. Um, another, another major challenge was shipping complications. So scheduling issues, which I think many more folks have seen, you know, during COVID and post COVID. Um, but then even things like meeting withdrawal times. Um, so that tends to be another challenge, um, that, uh, producers are facing. And then the last one that was emphasized in this poll was just the lack in making more straightforward decisions on animal conditions, meaning, meaning, um, treatments. Uh, do we, do we treat her? Do we ship her? Do we euthanize her? And it seems like more help and more training can help make that a more straightforward process, uh, for those people making that decision that hopefully can lend itself then to more proactive fitness to transport decisions. Um, however, now if you look at the literature, you will find that uh, surveys um, and literature reviews indicate very similar things in a more general way um, that indicate what those challenges are, predominantly for things like timely euthanasia. And that includes ineffective caretaker training, a lack of written protocols, uh, treatment choices, and effective assessment in the quality of life of animals. Um, that human animal bond can sometimes deter a person or a caretaker, right, from making that decision. Um, and then last but not least, as was mentioned in that poll, the economic disincentives or incentives, right, for shipping these, these types of animals. So hopefully that list that I just um, outlined here is presenting many opportunities in your listeners to say, hey, I know I can play a role in helping with that, or that's an area I've been wanting to fix on one of my clients' dairies, right? There's a lot of opportunities here for vets to help influence um, where those challenges are and help those clients overcome the challenges. To add to that too, I think sometimes we mix, or I guess combine the decision to call and the decision about fitness to transport. So if those aren't happening at the same time, I think they really need to like consciously be separated. And so the decision to call the animal might be made, but then it's going to probably wait several days until it's transported. And so there needs to be another checkpoint at the time of transport to actually make that fitness to transport condition. Because if an animal is being called, they're called for a variety of reasons, but some of those reasons might compromise their welfare. And so several days can really change the status of that animal. One interesting point I heard you make was that these decisions lead to better employee satisfaction while improving animal welfare. And we are all familiar across the U.S. about workforce issues, and it certainly uh, impacted our sector from the veterinary profession and on farms. So I think employee satisfaction, uh, workforce issues are very important. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Fred. So um, this is an area uh, that I think more and more experts um, need to start discussing and thinking through in trying to achieve animal welfare outcomes. And what I mean by that is by keeping the people aspect of this whole process of caring for animals much more in mind and not just focusing on the animal, right? So there's a lot of literature, surprisingly, that shows that when you focus any opportunity or training opportunity on employee attitude, employee behavior, and employee motivation to learn, you actually see not just 
improved outcomes from the animal standpoint, so maybe it's health, maybe it's productivity, maybe it's welfare, you do see a lot of those benefits. But what you also see to the point of your question, Fred, is you do see improvements in job satisfaction, work motivation, work performance, and an increase in the technical skills and knowledge, which employees are always looking for that want to have more long-term opportunities at their, at their current jobs, right? So, all of this together by just focusing um, on, again, the attitude, the behavior and the motivation to learn of employees when you're teaching them what they're supposed to do and you're teaching them what the expectations are of an operation. All of those improved outcomes we've seen in the literature, they do lead to improved employee retention and can help an operation maintain a long term pool of skilled employees. Right. So this not only is a win-win from the standpoint of that dairy manager, dairy owner, and having retained labor, and not just retained labor, but retained skilled labor, but that's a win for animal welfare outcomes too, because not having constant turnover rates means that you've got skilled seasonal people that are happy, but they're also, they know what they're doing, and they're hopefully engaged in the process in providing feedback, working closer with the veterinarian, wanting to grow and learn more so that they can do their job better every day, right? So it it truly is a win-win from that standpoint. And as a veterinarian, if you can help promote that positive cycle and provide resources to support that, um, I think clients will find you and your efforts very valuable beyond the animal welfare component, right? Because as I, as I go out in the field and I talk to, to any animal uh, livestock owner <laughs> beyond dairy, the, the things that are always keeping them up at night is, is their labor. And so having a retain, a, a good retention rate, um, and again, that, that, that large pool of skilled employees can have benefits beyond animal welfare. And I think if a veterinarian can contribute to that, clients will find all of those efforts incredibly valuable. Yes, I agree completely, and that's such an important uh, issue to make sure that we are that we understand that this is a team culture on our farms and the role of the veterinarian in, in, in developing that culture with their farm owners and managers. Let's talk a little bit about a really cool resource which was developed by Alanco on fitness to transport. Can uh, we talk a little bit about that video and then how can veterinarians use it as a resource for their clients to improve animal welfare and improve fitness to transport decisions? Is this something that veterinarians can use for employee meetings to, to help their clients? Absolutely. So we're excited to announce that, yes, there is a new video training resource available, um, but we're especially ex- um, excited to announce this here because we really do believe that veterinarians will benefit benefit greatly from adding this tool into their tool chest. So just very quickly on the video, um, it is a fitness to transport video that I believe is a 12 to 13 minute video. So it's a very quick training video and it's, it was designed to complement the farm program. So this doesn't have new jargon. It doesn't have new standards. Um, it's very straightforward. It carries a lot of relevant visuals. Um, and again, it complements what's already in place for the dairy industry. So we're not reinventing the wheel here. And what we're hoping is that veterinarians can use this to enhance what they're already doing in the field in this space. Um, so 
As you mentioned, Elenco uh, partnered, Elenco was able to partner with many stakeholders across the dairy supply chain because this is an issue, as we mentioned earlier, that affects the entire supply chain. So we were able to partner with experts like Lily from Colorado State University, other experts at New Mexico State University, Dr. Robert Hagevort. We also partnered with Livestock Marketing Association, or LMA. We partnered with Cargill, and we also partnered with uh, National Milk Producers Federation and the Farm Program. So lots of major uh, partners in this video um, or that contributed to the success of this video. And collectively, uh, what this video covers is answering the questions of what is fitness to transport? Why is it important? Who impacts the fitness to transport decisions on an operation? How do we know if cows or calves are fit to transport and how should cows and calves that are not fit to transport be handled? So we think it really does a nice job of answering those questions um, in a more visual and straightforward way that can really help set up um, a training by a veterinarian or even a refresher um, if, if an operation is looking for topics to refresh um, their employees on. It's a nice and quick way to start that conversation or maintain that conversation throughout the year. Um, we're also um, very proud that we made this video in a very practical and relevant way. So it really does highlight with visuals and the content, the entire journey from the calf ranch or dairy through sale barns or auction rings all the way to the packing plant. So you've got visuals up and down that supply chain so that everyone that's involved in this process can see what an animal may endure and make it relevant to everyone that's a stakeholder in the supply chain. So um, ultimately, as, as you were asking earlier, how do we envision, you know, those that use this video, especially the veterinarians, how can they utilize this um, to their benefit, right? And so we obviously envision that this would be used within a training program, right? I think we all know here on this podcast that a video can only do so much on its own, right? So it's meant to help enhance um, additional actions or efforts needed to make more meaningful change in behaviors or decision-making processes specifically to this topic. So we're hoping that it complements a training program or helps start more hands-on interactions with employees. Um, it can provide a multimodal way of learning because we know employees and people in general have many different ways of learning. So it provides that opportunity. Um, and the video itself is currently in English, but we are already in the process of making it available in Spanish. So we're hoping that it can re reach a wide array of audiences and, and be uh, culturally um, relevant to those that are watching the video. Um, we also hope that it helps reemphasize the points that the veterinarian will be making by external experts, right? I often hear that employees buy in a lot more when they see others emphasizing the same principles, not just their supervisor or manager, not just the veterinarian, right? So that's what we were hoping to bring in experts in that video to help reemphasize all of those points. And then last but not least, we're hoping it helps that veterinarian, again, help promote that positive cycle and positive workplace culture and bring more things to help employees find educational opportunities to grow and learn about more welfare topics. Maybe it can be a way that the veterinarian can help 
reestablish or modify what the incentive programs are on things like mortality rates, right, or making any of those decisions with the client and help them, again, have those conversations with the decision makers. And again, just be part of that conversation as the culture builds and animal welfare is a core part of that, that the veterinarian can continue to play a part in that culture setting experience. Considering the collaborators too, I think we hope that the auction markets and slaughter plants show this video to their employees as, as part of a training program as well. Because I think we often, you know, take for granted that people that work at the terminal point of the supply chain understand the origin of where those cows came from. And I think just honestly, they might not. And so really kind of reinforcing all the things Michelle just care, uh, just described, but across those sectors, because I think that really helps kind of have a a shared approach to caring for making these decisions uh, for the animals. Yeah. Kudos to Alanco for developing that resource. You know, we often hear uh, from AABP members that they want to do something on a farm, but they don't have time to develop some of these resources. So really encourage our listeners to check out that resource and use it as an initial step in having these conversations on farm. So, so thank you for that. Let's talk about uh, um, some of the top things that make an animal unfit for transport that we can have those discussions with our, with our farm uh, clients. Yes, thanks for asking that question. Um, I think if we think about the statistics on the data I shared from the slaughter plant um, and some of the auction market data out of Canada, it's a lot of those conditions, right? It's the things that, you know, that I listed and it's like, oh yeah, that wouldn't be a great, a great scenario for the animal to be transported in. Um, so it's things like, you know, the animal being non-ambulatory. And I know that sounds really obvious, but animals do appear at these different locations in a non-ambulatory state. Um, it doesn't mean that they necessarily were loaded that way, um, but there was something, you know, that maybe predisposed them to becoming that way uh, during the journey. So no bone fractures of limbs or, or, you know, injuries to the spine that are really going to relate to that animal's mobility. And also, you know, I, I guess aside from its ability to navigate the system, just the pain that that animal would likely be experiencing with some sort of uh, injury like that. Uh, I mentioned emaciation a few times in those poor conditions, so poor body condition. Um, and generally, you know, per farm guidelines, farm has a great um, kind of poster that can be used uh, with some of these on there. This would be, you know, less than a, a body condition score of two. Um, and then there's, a, you know, there's a whole list of other conditions. I feel like we never list all the conditions. So we hope mm -hmm. that hearing some of them, you'd be like, yeah, that animal shouldn't be shipped. But um blindness, cancer eye, uh, some of these are related also to if an animal would pass um, inspection at the plant, um, suspected central nervous system um, issues, uh, severe prolapses, animals that are, you know, calving is imminent, um, which can happen. I mean, that does happen during transport or at the plant. And if we think about kind of udder condition, you know, like very distended udders that can cause pain, but also ambulatory issues. So I think, if you think about all of those, they are very much related to an animal's ability to withstand that journey that we've talked about. Um, and they also, I think it is a little bit secondary um, because I think welfare is primary, but secondary is related to that animal uh, inspection at the plant. So will they pass pre-slaughter inspection um, and be able to, to be used um, in the food supply? 
you know, we've talked about a lot of things on this podcast, just some really wonderful tips here. But in the end, I always uh, try to, from AABP's perspective, inform our members about here are some opportunities for you. These, This is a way for you to help your farms as well as it's on-farm billable hours. And it's non-traditional perhaps, but I think we need to think about that as veterinarians. And we need to empower uh, the decision makers with making the right decisions. So as we wrap up, what are some tips for veterinarians to have these conversations and for empowering these employees and farm managers to make the right decisions with the animal welfare uh, at the forefront of that decision-making process? Yeah, Fred. So Lily and I have a nice list of tips here. And um, um, let's start with one thing we mentioned earlier was know who your audience is, right? So when it comes to this decision-making process, it may be very specific at the at the operation, right? Or at the sale barn or the plant. So just determine who's making that decision because that will better tailor your time and experience in terms of how to help influence to make more of that proactive decision-making. Um, one thing I love preaching a lot um, is focusing not just on the do's and the don'ts or the how and the what, but the why, right? So I think it naturally comes to all of us on this podcast and to your audience that as Lily went through all of those conditions, it's a no-brainer, right, that those animals shouldn't be transported. But for other people, this is a very subjective an unknown area, right? Especially the, maybe those managers or someone that just got promoted to a manager position, right? Um, and so th- there's a lot of gray in this space. It may not seem so black and white. So we, so whenever we have the opportunity to engage and educate, let's make sure we're always focusing on why that animal with that condition won't make it, right? And try and explain it from that perspective, not just yes and no and 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 you know this ships and this doesn't right go in there and explain why folks are very eager to know why um and the veterinarian can help help enforce that um one thing that you can easily um do to help overcome some of that subjectivity and observer accuracy right where a veterinarian may see an animal in a condition and be like that's a definitely that's not one that can be shipped whereas someone else can completely see it in a different way um, is to look at animals together, right? So you just need to plan for time to look at animals together, uh, um, observe them, and try and uh, determine their fitness to transport. Um, and as Lily mentioned earlier, it's not just at the time when the animals are being cold, it's got to be at the time when they're getting prepared to load out again. So there's many opportunities, hopefully, where a veterinarian can actually practice with the employees and have a more um, impactful um, approach with employees and empower them too, because there's always going to be those rare instances, right? Where things are a little more gray and talking through it and explaining the why helps reinforce the confidence in that person that's making those decisions. Um, I'll, I'll, um, end here. And I know Lily has a couple tips maybe up her sleeve, but one thing that she and I always like talking about is, making sure that people are intentional about measuring things, right? She and I have always uh, gone out and helped preach the message that Temple talks about, right? In you got to manage what you measure, right? If you're not measuring, you can't manage it, right? So make those checklists, try and make decision-making trees or work with those employees to make more more uh, straightforward decisions and help them measure it, right? Because by measuring it, Um, You can monitor certain situations 
and determine where lost opportunities may exist, right? So for instance, sometimes that time between when an animal gets cold versus when it actually ships, that can be a pretty long duration. And I think Lily might have a statistic from the literature on that, um, where that time can actually be much longer than we'd expect. And maybe by minimizing that time, or, or then deciding, okay, well, then after X days, this animal is no longer going to be shipped because we're going to reevaluate them. And we know that there's going to be lost opportunities there, right? Because of this, these factors um, that can help the veterinarian help set them up again in a more straightforward and structured way um, to be able to measure, provide documentation if an operation should ever be challenged on their animal welfare efforts and their, and their relationship with their veterinarian but then also find ways to not lose savings and not lose costs by trying to be proactive and ship those animals. Lily, do you have that statistic? Um, yeah. 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 That um, the Stoshkov paper actually said that cows could wait up to 127 days until the decision to ship was made on the dairy. So, I mean, that's a huge, a huge yeah. duration. Right. Um, and I'm sure that's, you know, that's, that's not for all scenarios, but as we kind of mentioned, even a couple days, I think makes a difference to the animal. Um, so to, to build on what Michelle said, I think from a measurement standpoint as well, the veterinarian could help facilitate some of those conversations further down the supply chain. And I know that, you know, every operation is kind of different in how they, um, sell or transport or change ownership of those cull cows. But I think, measurement goes off the dairy as well. And so understanding, you know, what that journey looks like for the animal. And, you know, if we sell these animals here, it's going to take X amount of days to get there. Um, some of those studies show that cows can be in the supply chain for, you know, over three days um, just because of the different stops in between. Uh, and then the, you know, the one other thing I just want to mention from some other research that we've done, but I, I think it's highlights a huge opportunity for veterinarians we found in a lot of other areas, and it's really been related mostly to euthanasia, is that caretakers want more opportunities for training um, to do their jobs better. Um, that's been a clear sharing across the board, across different species types. Um, and veterinarians um, always mention that they want to be more involved in training opportunities. So I think we should really capitalize on this. And I think you know, we almost have these like two groups where veterinarians, I think, just need to offer that help. And I think that similarly, the, the operations just need to ask for that help. And I think we can really come together and have some great collaborative opportunities to kind of advance um, our experience in an area like fitness to transport. Absolutely. And then just to put the icing on the cake here, Fred, um, the veterinarian can really play a role, maybe even to serve as a liaison when um, a, 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 a dairy producer, right, is selling their animals and, and perhaps try and help engage when there's issues like DOAs or condemns or even help get that producer some credit. And so really what, what I'm trying to get at here is that that person that is selling these animals ultimately wants to be that preferred supplier and you get there by making more proactive and effective decisions and the veterinarian can help with that process on that operation, but perhaps there may be opportunities for them to serve as a liaison in between those B2B conversations and sometimes um, in some ways. Um, and just again, just help them get that credit or be recognized, right? To be that preferred supplier that's constantly going to send animals that are not questionable, that are not compromised and are not going to be a safety or animal welfare risk. 
Well, I really want to thank both of you for this excellent topic where I believe that veterinarians can make a significant impact on their farms uh, and improve animal welfare. I want to remind our listeners that you should always put the welfare of the animal at the forefront of our decision-making process. Certainly uh, calling animals, um, euthanizing animals has economic impacts uh, to the farm. However, uh, we always must keep the welfare of the animal number one and ensuring that the animals that we uh, identify as being fit to transport in the long run is the best financial decision for the dairy as well. We talked multiple times about the opportunities for veterinarians here, and that's one of our goals with this podcast. As you're driving in your trucks today to your farm clients, ask them about fitness to transport. Who is making the decision? Where are they making that decision? Who is standing at the trailer? Are they practicing proper handling techniques while they're loading those animals into the trailer? Um, who is making that decision? Are we empowering the employees? Talk with the managers and the owners and help them to understand the importance of this topic. Use the video that we discussed here, and we will include links to several of the things we talked about today in our show notes, but use that video. Schedule a meeting with your farm, and one of the tips here was develop a checklist and make sure that we are not only explaining to the uh, participants in our farm meetings uh, that here's a, a list of the conditions that we want to watch out for, but why? Why shouldn't we ship an animal that is lame or has a distended udder or has other conditions that would make them not fit for transport? And finally, one of the things I always did on my farms was I would use the term can versus should, and we can always put an animal on the trailer, but we really need to ask ourselves, should this animal go on a trailer today or is this a decision that should be delayed until the animal is fit for transport? And if that day is unlikely to come, then we owe it to that animal to end her suffering and give her an appropriate humane euthanasia. I want to thank both of you for talking us, talking to us about this very important topic, uh, as well as helping to develop some of these resources so our veterinarians can ensure appropriate animal care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.